Jaws for a minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic Jaws, one minute at a time or thereabouts. I'm your co-host MJ Smith. And I am Sarah Buttery and we are joined by a guest again today. So welcome Tim Coleman. Um, How are you doing today? I am very well. Thank you, Sarah. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, This is a scene I I'm very excited to talk about and I'm very glad that you're um, here with us as well um, because I know that you're a big Jaws fan so you're in fantastic company here Um, and as we ask all of our guests uh, when they come onto the show is um, just to tell us a little bit about your love for Jaws maybe when you first saw it or what it is about this film that you that you particularly love. So Jaws is one of those films where I can't accurately recall exactly how old I was except to say that I was too young probably Um, (laughs) because it's kind of one of those films which is etched into my very very early memories um, in a way that is quite it feels like it psychologically left quite a impact on me and it's a real cliche because I think almost everybody says this but you remember never feeling okay in the water again because of Jaws (laughs) Um, and so even in like in swimming pools as a kid I would have these you know cold sweats about the idea of what if a great white shark suddenly (laughs) appeared in the deep end and I was unable to get out in time Um, and even to the point like like uh, several years ago now I was uh, scuba diving with some friends off of um, the coast of Kenya and we're about a mile out into the into the into the ocean and uh, our guide was like yeah the water's a little bit sharky but they shouldn't come in this far because there's a there's a you know, like a uh, a reef, basically, which they would struggle to get over. Um, so I'm, I'm in there, and I've kind of got, like, my snorkel. Uh, but, uh, you know, underwater, all you can hear is your own breathing going, like, and I, I just couldn't enjoy the experience, because I was like, I was absolutely convinced I was going to get, like, taken out by a shark coming up from behind me in my blind spot. So, um, you know, thank you, Steven Spielberg, for ruining my holiday. <laughs> Yeah, the phrase a little bit sharky is not anything that you want to hear like when you're in the water, is it? Yeah. No, that you're means, like, well, that also translates to it's too sharky. One <laughs> percent <laughs> sharky, too sharky for me. Yes, it's a... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny as well, like how many of our guests who come on the show say that they can't really remember when they first saw Jaws, but they knew that they were too young to be watching mm. Jaws when they first saw it. So yeah <laughs> yeah i mean even now like, I, I rewatched it ahead of our conversation today um and the dvd copy i've got is a pg i'm not sh- i think it maybe got raised up to a 12 more recently but but you know for a long time that it was accessible and as a family film and it, you know it still is generally thought of in those terms which is ridiculous when you think about the content that's in this mm-hmm. film it, it's absolutely you know and and for me as well like i i not only guess saw the the original too young like um when i would visit my grandparents as a, as a young child they only had like two or three 
VHS tapes of films they taped, and one of them was Jaws 3, um, which I know objectively is not a good film, but I have like a huge <laughs> amount of affection for it because of you know, that time I saw it. And um, mm. I rewatched Jaws 3 uh, this year, I think just before lockdown one here in the UK. And and uh, I was like, oh, you know, it, it's kind of crazy and it's it's a bit wacky and it's fun. But there, there is a moment in the uh, the final act of Jaws 3 where one character is eaten and they're just very, very slowly chewed to death. Like they get kind of sucked into the shark's mouth and they're not killed right away and they're struggling to get out past the teeth, but it keeps on chewing and it just gradually just crunches them down. And I was like, oh, yes, yes, this is this is also did not help with my pathological fear of the water. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the whole franchise is... Uh, it's got a lot to answer for in terms of like uh, social trauma for children from the uh, 80s and 90s, well, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that that'll do it. That'll put the that'll put the fear into you. And um, I'm a I'm a bit of a sequels uh, defender, particularly mm. Jaws two, which I think mm-hmm. is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, MJ has not watched any of them, so ah, we're gonna make okay. that yeah. we're gonna make that happen at some point. Yeah, man, you totally should. Like, yeah, Jaws two is fairly decent, and I think Jaws three, if you can kind of tune into its gonzo tone and and also the fact that um dennis quaid was apparently absolutely high on cocaine in every single shot of that film um <laughs> it kind of gives it a real energy which you know it, it, i mean the special effects are not good i think that one was nope, directed yeah. by joe alves you know who as production designer for the first film you kind of think joe where did it all go wrong but um um <laughs> uh, but it's still got this kind of absolutely insane 80s amped up vibe to it which is is, is fun you know and even Jaws of the Revenge which is you know often derided as one of the worst films ever made has its moments you know the, mm-hmm. the moment with um Ellen Brody uh, her dream sequence when she's like out about 100 feet out into the ocean still comes back to me you know and mm. yeah yeah so like you know it, it's clearly the first one is the only great film in the in the um in the series but uh they all have things to commend them Mm. yeah something i'm learning about having <clears throat> all these guests on who are in the uk is that jaws was on tv way more over there than it was here it was kind of it was not a movie that people grew up with on tv all the time it's not one i remember it, it was rare for it to be on television here um okay. which is it's super interesting because every guest so far has been like oh yeah you, it's just one of those movies that you grow up watching because it's on TV all the time. And I was like, you did, we did not have that experience in the States. (laughs) Yeah. It's still the case actually. Like I will often just be like scrolling through the channels and there is a channel called ITV2. And it is, if it's, if they're not showing hot fuzz, then they will be showing Jaws. Um, I just, I always just seem to catch it at some point. And then as we all know, if you just happen to stumble across Jaws on the TV, it's the law that you have to watch the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't make the rules, but I'm pretty sure that is one. Um, yeah, it's interesting, actually, that I, I didn't see it on TV um, just because I think I probably wasn't allowed. Um, <laughs> um, so I didn't see it until much, much later um, when I sort of had the Blu-ray. But yeah, it is it is still and was then on on tv a lot so yeah interesting that didn't happen over the over the pond. yeah because yeah yeah because it is a really strong piece of cinema i think mm. um you know so i've got i've got uh three children of my own and my oldest is 11 and so which she's kind of at that stage where she's asking what can she watch what can she not watch and so and she's got quite strong taste so like one of her favorite films is a quiet place from uh which i know nice. is 15 but i kind of you know, there's not much gore on screen and it's more about suspense and stuff. And so, like, you know, I let her watch that one. Um, uh, but, 
Jaws is still one of those ones which we're, we're like still debating because I like I know it's only a PG, but flipping it's it will change you as a person. <laughs> 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 like quiet place, no one worries about making sound. You're not worried about like monsters coming in and eating you because like you know you you know you you uh, cried out or something. It's um, far mm. more primal, far more far more deeply seated in the psychology of, of human beings. Jaws and um, yeah, irrespective of its certification, it, its power is undiminished. I think. Mm. it just feels that bit more real doesn't it like something that could could actually happen and Mm. um yeah i can see why there would be sort of hesitation in watching it especially if your child really enjoys swimming or being on the beach because this this (laughs) could uh this could change that but um yeah let's 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 get started talking about this scene because um i know we're probably gonna have loads to say as well um about this so yeah the if you're following along at home um then the timestamp of this scene is 19 minutes and 18 seconds up to 20 minutes and 46 seconds again i'm really sorry for the point it cuts off at because you i know you will want to watch quint's monologue but you can't you're gonna have to wait another week um i mean you could watch it you're not doing a minute by minute podcast breakdown of it but um we had to stop it and uh, cut it off at that scene and wait until we come back to record that one um so we kick off uh, as larry is calling the meeting to order opens it up to questions from uh, the townspeople and uh we have uh the greatest line of all time which we will absolutely spend lots of time talking about there's lots of arguing and yelling and uh brody trying to get his point across and uh we find out that the beaches are in fact going to be closed or as you know brody would like them to be anyway um and then the scene ends uh with quint uh dragging his nails down uh the chalkboard and uh that's that's where we leave it I'm afraid uh, we will come back next week for for Quint's proper introduction. But this is our first our first sight of Quint, which is very exciting. So we do get to start talking about him a little bit, even though he doesn't say anything in this bit that we're talking about. Okay, I think that's enough uh, preamble on the scene. Um, Tim, as our uh, distinguished guest, I'm going to throw it over to you first for any observations or things that um, jumped out to you in in this scene. Cool. Um, so I guess what I would, I guess there's a couple of things I wanted to pull out, which, uh, they might be on the stuff that you guys wanted to cover anyway. And the first one, I guess, is about how really across like the first half of Jaws, um, like Spielberg is really this master of overlapping sound and, Mm -hmm. um, crowd scenes, um, basically where, um, there are numerous moments even before this point where, We've got um, a large group of characters who are talking at the same time or talking over each other, or there's a lot of ambient background noise. And as an audience member, you're very much like picking bits and pieces, like you're eavesdropping in on the conversation. Um, and one of the reasons I, I love that is it kind of it juxtaposes so well with the second half when it's you know Hooper and and Quint and Brody on the boat, um, and also you know even within in the context of the first half, it allows for mo- quiet moments to land a bit bit heavier. So um, one moment you've covered already is when Brody's typing up Chrissy's death certificate. And up until the point where he types shark attack, he's, he's like, you know, dealing with his secretary, he's talking about the kids karateing the, uh, the fence. And so then the moment of silence when... Um, when he then types in shark attack, it lands on them more powerfully. And I think for the, for this scene, 
it is essentially setting up a, a couple of things, both in terms of the power dynamics and the values of Amity, but also, as you said, is a prelude to the introduction of Quint. And so the fact that it is people talking over each other, like you, you can pick up different lines of dialogue, it, you know, you can watch it maybe 10 times and, and try and zero in on different conversations. Um, it, it just creates a very rich representation of a genuine town, um, which which is quite masterful. I don't, it's not something I think people often talk about with Jaws. You know, we often zero in on, you know, that you don't see the shark or the relationships between the three men. But I think this kind of sense of Amity as a place and Amity with its own particular uh, set of values and concerns and how they perhaps run contrary to those of Brody and actually common sense um, is really interesting. Um, yeah, so the other thing I guess we... I, you may want to come back to that or not, but the other thing which is interesting is about how like Quint is introduced, um, because um, as you guys know, of course, that there was like several iterations of the script before we have the the script as it is now. So you had the version turned in by Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel of Jaws. Um, Spielberg wrote his own version, and then we had like people like Howard Sackler, and then finally Carl Gottlieb, you know, uh, gave a pass at it, and then you know other people like John Milius and even Robert Shaw, like kind of contributing to different bits. But um, apparently Spielberg's version of the script had a slightly different introduction for Quint, um, which is a bit different from this one. So, um, we, you know, I don't know if you guys want to talk about that now or, or perhaps later when we talk about Quint, but I thought that would be interesting to, to explore a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I think actually that's, we'll, we'll pick up first on the sort of the overlapping uh, sound, because I think that is something that we've we've mentioned in previous episodes because both mj and i have mentioned that we we tend to watch this with headphones um because mm. you know decent noise cancelling headphones and then you are just getting the sound of the film and you're not getting all the distractions mm. um and in the process of preparing for these episodes as well um i certainly watch the scene as many times as i can fit in in about half an hour whilst also writing notes at the same time um so i watched today's one i think seven or eight times which is usually what i what i get to um because i just like to pick out all of those little bits of of dialogue um without missing anything and obviously you get some of it in the subtitles as well i'm i'm also a big fan of watching things with subtitles because i don't like missing out on any dialogue and you really get the the sense in this scene and, and we talked about this a little bit on last week's episode as well that it's there's really these two sides now in in amity and in what they sort of what they sort of believe and what they what they think about the situation as it is unfolding um and there's now this sort of conflict between between the two sides so the fact that this scene and the previous is sort of quite chaotic with that overlapping dialogue really shows the conflict that is happening in the town so we have those who are uh excited i guess for for want of a better word um about this because they've seen the bounty three thousand dollars is pretty good um and they're fishermen so they're you know they're now seeing this as a sport and Brody uh, describes it as being like a contest so there's that half of the room who are like yeah like let's go out and hunt this shark and then there's the other half of the room that are like, but what about the beaches? Like, are you going to close the beaches? Mm. Um, which seem to be the more vocal part of the of the room because we get the sort of wise cracking guy at the start who asks whether the bounty will be cash or check. Um, and, but from that point on, the chat 
or argument from the crowd seems to mostly be about the closing of the beaches, which seems to be the real the real sticking point for them. So, yeah, and I uh, we will talk more about the best line, but I like how that <laughs> there are certain voices that are just louder and more upfront than others and mrs taft is one of them she always gets her question in there and her thoughts in there um and then of course our, our favorite character who yells at the top of their voice uh about the 24 hour uh, yes. curfew on the beaches <laughs> but um yeah yeah no absolutely um i think the one of the things which is pared down a little bit but it's still there in the film which is in Benchley's novel is about this kind of corruption in the heart of Amity um, so like in the in the novel there's this whole subplot around um, uh, Mayor Vaughan being corrupt and involved with <coughs> the mafia or the local mob mm-hmm. and that that's kind of nixed from the film but what, what you do still have is this sense of moral corruption where as a town because it's as you know uh, Mayor Vaughan keeps on saying it's a summer town we need those summer dollars um, and that that's really what the debate here is at this point. Like you said, Mrs. Taft, who um, even like in the scene before, she's she's present on the beach, I believe, uh, during the death of Alec Kinder. Mm-hmm. And she's even joking with Ellen Brody saying, oh, you know, you're, you're never going to be a, a, an islander. You, you have to be a born here to be an islander. So she's kind of, if you like, she's Mrs. Amity, right? So she's kind of an <laughs> archetypal um, Amity, Amity girl. Mm. Um, and her reaction because she was on the beach so she saw what happened to Alec Kinder or she didn't see it she saw the bloodied lilo washed up afterwards mm-hmm. and her reaction isn't like we've got a man-eating shark that just ate a little boy and you know of course a dog Pippin let's not forget Pippin um, <laughs> but uh, it, her, her reaction isn't one of sympathy or empathy with Mrs Kinder or like like um, how are we going to face this as a community it's worrying about how her bottom line is going to be affected as a as a businesswoman um, and Although that, you know, so that that's kind of, if you like, a, a level of almost moral corruption, if not like financial corruption, where it's the sense of losing sight of the human cost and, and the human <clears throat> risk that's involved in this animal being off the off the shores of Amity um, and being preoccupied instead with the financial implications of that. I think one of the interesting things, too, about Mrs. Taft doing all this, right, is that she's also the one in the previous scene concerned about who is an islander and who isn't an islander and who gets to be an islander and the fact that you can't become an islander you have to be born on the island and so uh ellen and and martin will never be islanders and then when something happens to an islander she doesn't give a damn she doesn't Mm. care at all about them so it's this definite, like, you know, idea of, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're the island and we stick together. And then as soon as something bad happens, they cut and run. <laughs> um, you know, and I think I was maybe a little gracious to M- Mrs. Taft last week, right? With the, uh, <laughs> yep, the five stages of grief thing. Um, but like I said, she's not off the hook because she's experienced this trauma and is trying to process it like that's certainly part of it i'm sure but you know don't that's it's not an excuse to be a jerk either you know it it can't be you can't scapegoat it like that um Mm. and i think that's where it gets really frustrating is she's not we don't see her 
actively explicitly trying to do that but i think the subtext in the scene is not it's not trying to scapegoat her but it's trying to paint that portrait but it also it, at no point does the film endorse her actions or words mm-hmm. either um and i think we mentioned this last week too but brody is kind of he's kind of a man without a country in this in this uh scene where he's you know he's off to the side he's kind of leaning against a table and he's just kind of looking at the at at the tafts and the people filing in and he's you can tell he's paying attention and the look on his face is kind of like what the hell is wrong with you lady Mm. um (laughs) and then when mayor vaughn starts the meeting he says birdie will you please and he tells him to come to the other side of the table because that's technically where he belongs and birdie's just kind of like oh yeah like he doesn't he doesn't sit himself with either side he does not see himself as part of the leadership of amity Mm -hmm. but he also doesn't see himself as part of the citizenry Mm -hmm. of amity either he's just kind of in this weird in-between space off by himself Mm -hmm. um at the beginning of the scene i mean one of that that's a really interesting point because i think there's a lot in the uh, scenes previous to this one about how brody is perceived as having perhaps a subordinate level of authority to the mayor. Um, so we've got the, that mm. scene on the ferry where uh, Mayor Vaughan's saying, whose authority are you going to use to close the beaches, essentially? And he says, well, my own. Um, and then in this moment, as you, as you quite rightly say, like uh, Brody is there sitting on the table. And when Vaughan asks him to come back, he calls him by his first name to start with, says Martin, come round, rather than Chief. And then after that, he calls him Chief when he's moved round. And so... This is sense, you know, by calling him by his first name rather than by his official title, it somewhat diminishes the level of authority. And then, of course, moments later, Vaughan undercuts him again when Brody says we're going to close the beaches and Vaughan says only for 24 hours. You know, there, there is that kind of power struggle at the heart about who actually is running the show. And, and that, of course, continues for the first half of the film until the uh, attack in the pond uh, when mm-hmm. there's a decision made after that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Brody also in this scene, when he starts delivering his lines, he's not confident. He stumbles over his words um, pretty bad when he when when he starts getting um, pushback from the, the community itself. You know, he's he, he messes up the phrase where we have the summer officers coming in like he, he stutters around that phrase a little bit. And so he's not super confident in what he's saying for probably a a myriad reasons because he's not he knows how they feel about him as being not an islander and he doesn't want to step on toes but he knows what happened to chrissy and also he's not sure if he can say anything and not have the mayor immediately contradict it which is exactly what happens um (laughs) because of what happened on the ferry so he's got a lot of external and internal stressors pressures and uh just kind of like bad stuff like it's the perfect storm of things to not go right for him to do his job and do it correctly and well Mm. yeah there's um, something a couple of interesting things that we've spoken about previously kind of come back in this scene as well that i noticed which is um brody being perceived as and treated as the outsider and also this idea of a predator kind of separating away from the pack and sort of having like the lone the lone person or the lone victim as we see in a lot of cases. So when Brody is 
delivering the first part of of his speech or you know his plan to the room about the extra summer deputies and the shark spotters um in this shot we see him him and the the panel and the crowd for for part of it as well and it's sort of to the to the side but we see that other people are with him and actually we see one of the guys on the panel when he says about the extra summer summer deputies sort of nods and is like yeah that's a good idea um then it goes to mrs taft who asks him directly are you going to close the beaches and then when we return back to brody we just see brody we're like staring him head on so we're almost in the place of the the crowd like we are mrs taft almost in this moment and he is now alone we don't see the rest of the panel we don't see the rest of the room he is in front of the window um just now (laughs) completely on his own with this plan there is that just another opportunity to talk about what an incredible actor Roy Scheider is because in those moments, those subtle moments, those pauses, those hesitations, those slight stumbles over the words, we get so much from that. And in just that split second pause that he takes before he sort of says, yes, we're going to close the beaches is so perfect it's so well executed but yeah i just i i really like that sort of contrast in in shots between when he's delivering i guess the parts of the plan that more people are perhaps going to be on board with um which is the extra officers shark spotters very sort of like practical things and and he wisely starts with those things because the crowd can be like okay sure yeah great you know those things happen the beaches will still be open and then when he is delivering that sort of <laughs> the mic drop moment or like the final punchline of like, you know, yes, the beaches are going to be closed. We just see him on his own. And it's really just hammering home that point that he is now alone, alone in this, alone in trying to enforce this, at least for a little while anyway. And as we see almost immediately afterwards gets undermined and it's... Mm. Yeah, I just that idea of like separating someone out from from the pack is something that we've we've spoken about quite a bit previously. So I thought it was interesting to see it come up again. That's really good. I think that's really interesting, and it's kind of borne out in some of the subsequent scenes as well, where actually when Mrs. Kinder comes to uh, express her grief to an authority figure, it's Brody that she goes up to and Brody that she slaps, um, mm. and it's not it's not Vaughn, you know, and there is a sense of him almost as a cop being in a world of politics and political scapegoat escape I forget my teeth and scapegoatery, <laughs> you know, where he um, he's being basically positioned as a, play, a, a person who will be the fool guy and the person to blame when it goes wrong, even though he's being forced and coerced by the political powers around him to act against his better interests. Because of course, if he had gone with his first instincts and closed the beaches after Chrissy had died, that would be it right the film would be more or less over um mm-hmm. and of course the thing that drives the plot forward is a isn't primarily the shark it's the it's the human stupidity and the human greed um to put profits above people um that basically causes the subsequent tragedies um and then ultimately you know precipitates the need to hire quint and go to go to sea at the end yeah definitely i still am not gonna let birdie off the hook necessarily for <laughs> for not for not bringing up Chrissy's death in this meeting yeah, um, fair, fair. I this is something I talked about last week too where it's like he 
I think he could have swayed not everyone, not the the severe holdouts like the Tafts or whatever, but I think if a lot of if a lot more people knew about what happened to Chrissy, they would be making a more informed decision. Mm. And I I actually maybe this is this weird moral compass I have. <laughs> I don't understand the reasoning behind not doing that. Mm. Um well. because at this point he like i understand that it would maybe potentially be like a political suicide but he's constantly being undermined by the mayor left and right and i know that the medical examiner isn't on his side about this mm. but i kind of don't care <laughs> like <laughs> it, 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 to me like if it, it, if he's gonna he's gonna have to play that game at some point it seems like can i can i try and defend birdie just because i really sure. like him <laughs> as a character um <laughs> so do <because> we but... <laughs> you're quite right i mean i think we, I mean, we all like birdie right what's not to like he's yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but um i think what what the sense i get from him is he is being blown around a little bit by the different messages he's getting and so the the um pathologist report was that chrissy was killed as a result of a shark attack the pathologist then um reneges on that at the ferry and says like it could be a boating accident and Brody is clearly suspicious about this it's pretty clear that it's a change due to political interference rather than a genuine misdiagnosis but he does say like to the pathologist like you, you know you'll testify or you'll 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 stand on that you'll kind of confirm that and so he's kind of deferring to the expertise of other people it's only after this scene when Matt Hooper arrives on Amity and re-examines Chrissy's remains that he says of course this is no boat wedding accident and from that point on Brody's a lot more consistent like to the point of that he goes behind Vaughan's back to commit the autopsy on the tiger shark that's caught yeah. um, a little bit and so yes I he should have stood his ground more you're, you're quite right and and I think Brody himself would say that as well. So after Mrs. Kinder slaps him, um, someone says to him, like, you know, I'm sorry. And it's Vaughn, isn't it? Vaughn says, I'm sorry, Martin, she was wrong. And he says, mm. no, she wasn't. And he walks off. He, know, yeah. he knows what he did. Um, but that's the last time he compromises his integrity. And after this, he's willing to push back a lot harder to try and do his job properly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, she she slaps some sense into him in, in more ways than one. Because I think from, from that point on, it's sort of like that that realization and he holds a lot of that guilt as well from that point i think he throughout is holding on to onto guilt particularly for alex because he perhaps feels like that could have been prevented had he of you know battened down the beaches after chrissy but i agree with you as well tim i don't i don't think that he it certainly wasn't the easiest uh audience to try and convince of the closing down the beaches thing and we've talked about it a lot on previous episodes the just the people just left right front back just uh, you know accosting Brody as he's just going about his daily business being like hey here's this non-problem hey here's another non-problem the kids are karate in my fence uh I need a parking spot in front of my house like it's so much noise and we see that really come to a head in this scene um (laughs) which you talked about at the top Tim about just how much noise and overlapping chatter there is in in this particular scene and what is very interesting or something that I that I picked up on was that probably the arguably the most important information Brody gives to the crowd which is um that experts from the oceanographic institute are coming in um which we know to be matt hooper um he 
gives that to the crowd when it's already too late. Um, the crowd, because he's just delivered, like I said, the mic drop of, of the beaches are going to be closed. Um, so the crowd are yelling. He is he has already lost the crowd. They are gone. They are now not going to listen to a, a lick of what he has to say. But that bit that he tells them is maybe the most important because it's like the experts are the experts are coming the people who know how to deal with this shark are coming i am just you know the chief of police i only have so much power but the people who really do know what they're doing are coming but it's too late yes. at that point and that's a very um slightly depressing parallel for the times we find ourselves in at the moment as well where it's like the ignoring of the experts the ignoring of the science uh of the facts as it were just interesting an interesting little uh little parallel between what we're currently going through <laughs> yeah that's excellent yeah mm. i want to revisit this conversation about the stages of grief mm-hmm. me too <laughs> <laughs> um because last week we had kind of seen the denial and that was it um so if you listen to last week's episode you know that the argument is that this is where i i was a little gracious to mrs taft they experienced as a community a traumatic event uh much like we all are currently in 2020 um several traumatic events <laughs> happening um constantly in this year and I think we see she's the most vocal and she's denying that it even maybe was wasn't a shark mm-hmm. um but she's dressed in yellow she's got this big yellow handkerchief hanging off her purse so i don't think that's unintentional there's the 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 use of yellow in this movie is incredibly intentional mm-hmm. and so that was kind of my argument is we're seeing the denial here and we had we had blown that conversation out to maybe this whole scene is sort of most of the grieving process um, happening in a condensed amount of time because we don't see a lot of the community uh, interacting with Brody or Hooper or Vaughn. It, it kind of becomes the the Hooper Brody Vaughn Quint show for the rest of the movie. So I think they condensed a lot of this in here. Mm-hmm. So like we were talking about last week, the five stages of grief are uh, bargaining, anger, depression, um, or sorry, in order, <laughs> denial, or, <laughs> denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so we see denial, we see anger, very obviously, um, but then we see bargaining with uh, Mayor Vaughn saying, oh, it's only 24 hours, it's only 24 hours. And I would say that the end of this scene, and we'll get it, it happens actually in next week's episode after Quint's monologue. So Quint comes in and just says, like, the real truth, um, doesn't give a damn about anyone, and we'll talk about that next week. Like, whatever you're thinking right now, be damned, this was a shark, and I will get it for you, right? (laughs) And at the end of the scene, people kind of don't know what to do with that information, and I think that's maybe the depression. I don't know if people are like, oh, okay, yeah, Quint's right. I think they're they're just kind of like, uh, okay, what do we do with this now? Mm, processing. Um, and so I, yeah, and so I don't think we see acceptance until way later in the movie, like after the pond attack, mm-hmm. um, when people really are like, oh, okay, uh, yep, this this seems like something is 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 going on. So I think here in the scene we're talking about in this episode, we see the anger and the bargaining. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what you guys think about that, but 
Yeah, I think it's like a, it's an interesting uh, paradigm to try and view Amity's journey as like a collective consciousness um, and how they're processing it. Um, I do think it's problematized slightly by the financial element because um, mm. in a lot of um, grieving situations, so for example, you know, uh, when some, a loved one has lost their life, for example, the bargaining um, might be kind of associated with like, oh, you know, I can't, this can't be real, like God, please take me instead, that kind of thing. Um, here I feel like the bargaining is more really about people trying to save their own asses financially mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. in the case of Vaughan politically because you know he in this scene like uh, Murray Hamilton again I think is another great low you know calibrated sleazy performance as a guy who's just <laughs> sweating politically he just like you can feel because <laughs> like, I think I don't think he's a, an idiot, a stupid man I think he knows what's happened mm-hmm. uh, but he can he just knows that if he is the the mayor who oversees um, the shutting of beaches on the 4th of July weekend he is finished in this town, regardless mm. of the moral, you know, uh, correctness of that decision. And so, yeah, so I think it's interesting. I, th- I think certainly when you then, you get like the subsequent losses, like the the further attack um, in the pond um, in particular. I mean, you, you get, to, you know, poor Ben Gardner is killed, but nobody seems to pay much mind to him. Um, and then you <laughs> get the, the uh, very public uh, killing in the pond. Um, and then that seems to be what then pushes people through the Kubler-Ross curve and back out onto the other side. Because, uh, you know, on the, on the journey to acceptance, like Kubler-Ross expanded the five stages of grief over time to add another couple, um, which um, you have experiment where people try to then get out of their grief uh, before moving on to acceptance and integration. And mm. I, you can kind of see that that point, I think, is the lowest ebb for Amity where you cannot deny you've got all these tourists here and then you know for, for Brody personally as well because Michael's in the pool in the pond um, when it happens as well um, that there's no there's no denying at that point there's no bargaining there's no you know reasoning with it um, and that's when they have to then start experimenting to, to, to come out and face the uh, face the shock and face the situation full on mm. I think you could also see the the what follows after this meeting as well as the sort of testing of the waters in that they are clearly going through this thing and um, I definitely agree that in this particular scene and, and the one just before it that we see that denial and the anger and the bargaining but it still isn't they're still not fully through that yet and with this um expanded uh sort of grief cycle thing in mind the next point after this when they just go to the beaches and try to carry on as normal i think that kind of fits in hopefully i'm getting this right i know you're a bit more of an expert on this tim but i think that sort of fits in with the like experimenting idea as well where it's kind of like okay well let's just see shall we let's just go out and and see i don't know if that's exactly right but that's sort of my interpretation of it i guess but um yeah, yeah. I mean, like Kubler Ross, although it's presented as like a linear list, like you know, people can jump back and forth throughout mm-hmm. that. And if, if anybody who's suffered an actual real life bereavement, you'll know this. That some days, some days you wake up and you feel incredibly low. Some days you wake up and you're angry, and then some days you're like, no, mm-hmm. I, I can continue with my life 
with this loss as part of it. And we kind of flip back and forth through the different stages. It's quite a fluid, you know, probably to represent it as a linear curve is a little bit of a misrepresentation because the reality is people jump in and out of different stages. So, you, you, you know, you're quite right, Sarah. It could, you could view that as experiment. You could equally view it as denial um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and a questioning really about how many of those people on the beaches have all the facts because that, that is 4th of July weekend by that point. And a lot of those people, we see them coming in on the ferries, you know, from the mainland. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's definitely like it's a really interesting like model to have in mind, and it's not something I'd considered prior to you guys mentioning it. Um, just ahead of you know us having this conversation today, but it, yeah, like I think you could you could talk about those different um, five or seven stages being in play fairly constantly in the first half of of Jaws. Yeah, I think. Uh... I think there's something to it. I don't think it's a, a a main sticking point and it may not be a perfect model either, but I think there's some of that is in there. Um, just, uh, yeah. I don't know if it was written intentionally to be like, we are going to have this scene be the five stages of grief. It could be, but it could <laughs> yeah. just be, um, that's how people are. You know, he's, he's writing, yeah. like you said, a collective consciousness of people. And that's just how they react. Like people don't react that much differently across generations i think is one thing we're noticing um and so it's it's just it was true then and it's true now and so it's what helps the film feel kind of timeless as you i mean especially now is you look at this scene and you're like oh wow yeah that happened on a massive scale (laughs) across the world didn't it yeah um and uh which is a little depressing but it also is one of the things that does help prop this movie up where it's just like oh they nailed it like this is uh, like it's inarguable that these people or the people who wrote the film know how people operate and they know the psychology of people on some level Mm. very very intricately and intimately yeah Mm. absolutely i mean kind of linking that into something that you said uh, a few minutes ago mj as well about the color yellow um in this scene and across the film because yellow is throughout jaws uh used to often associate the presence of the shark mm-hmm. so you have um of course the you know the yellow barrels um in in the final act uh which uh, quint fixes to the shark's uh back but prior to that like um alex kinder's kinder's um lilo is yellow mm-hmm. uh, i think pippin's owner is wearing yellow swimwear um and then of course as you said mrs taft is wearing yellow in this scene so kind of like assuming that's intentional for mrs taft that there is a sense about like you you both said earlier like you know brody is this guy alone and it's like the the literal sharks are circling him here and it kind of reframes the ideology which taft is upholding Mm. one of like fiscal uh fiscal fear and like political you know being politically mauled um it's like they are now the predators circling Brody, and he's kind of then trapped between these two predatory forces the the one in nature and then perhaps the you know equally terrifying and perhaps more callous one which is the people Ooh. yeah and vaughn has yellow <laughs> on in the scene too he has a mustard yellow jacket mm-hmm. uh, yeah 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 yes yeah, so yeah. it's interesting then like those two main voices of opposition to him are coded with the with the shark's color mm. and they're on like either side of him as well so they're kind of they're kind of flanking him as well and yeah, so I mean, you get you you get it all at uh, Let's Jaws for a minute. We talk insane things about time traveling sharks, and then we also have this <laughs> really great analysis <laughs> about the the stages of grief and the 
idea of the the sharks not just being in the water but being on land as well it's like really nowhere is safe for Brody because out at sea the threat is the the shark and that's what we see in the second half of the film but in the first half of the film the shark is very much a presence but the real threat to Brody definitely comes from the people of Amity and particularly Mayor Vaughan so I mean, Mrs. Taft is the real villain of Jaws, confirmed, I feel, <laughs> in this in this scene. Either her or Larry, anyway. <laughs> I mean, and she and Larry are both in Jaws too, and then I think she's in Jaws The Revenge as well. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that she it controls the shark, but if you want to go wild with wild theories, maybe we can we have do. that. Yeah. <laughs> she is somehow telekinetically affect, uh, linked to the shark. Is that a is is that a theory we can get we can get into? You know, because one of I think in one of the early <laughs> scripts for Jaws: The Revenge, um, there was a subplot which was scrapped that the shark was being controlled by voodoo magic, yes. which is how it managed yep. to get all the way from uh, you know the kind of east coast of the states right down to the to the Bahamas. <laughs> so if you're going to go voodoo magic, let's go telekinetic Taft. Sure, <laughs> telekinetic Taft. Um, yeah, uh, you'll you'll have to listen to our because um, we're recording this the day after we recorded last week's episode. But um, that'll be a fun one for you to listen back to, Tim, because we basically have uh, figured out that Jaws is a time travel movie. Um, I say we. Okay. <laughs> MJ has uh, been putting the pins on the wall and has and has tracked the timeline of this film and discovered that we think Brody and or the shark are time travelers. So we'll Great see. Yeah, great Scott indeed. We'll see how that theory holds up. But um, yeah, I did. I We've sort of teased around it a little bit, but I did want to get to what is, without question, the most iconic line in Jaws. You can keep your, uh, you're going to need a bigger boat because the best line in Jaws comes in this scene. And it is when a uh, faceless woman, we do not see her, says uh, after Larry says that the beaches are only going to be closed for 24 hours. There's then a bit of sort of like general chaos in the room and then hear this woman clear as day yell, 24 hours is like three weeks. And what a line. It makes me laugh every single time. (laughs) So yeah, 24 hours is like three weeks is the best line in the movie as far as 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 I'm concerned. And I know Sarah's in the same boat, but... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me laugh every time the the 24 hours is like three weeks. Um, and it took on a very new and wonderful uh, life given the 2020 pandemic. Because when this first started, <laughs> everyone said, oh, it'll only be three weeks. And so the joke in my household was like, three weeks is like three weeks. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, have to give credit where credit is due, but uh, Tom Beasley, who was a previous guest, uh, said that um, I would love to know how this woman would cope uh, during this pandemic. <laughs> Basically, if oh she's if she's so upset about not being able to go to the beach for 24 hours, how would she cope being told to stay at home for, I don't know, a year? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it not, and I'm not not defending that that individual, but is it not a reflection on how their summer dollars are weighted? So in terms of they only really make money over kind of 4th of July through to maybe the end of August. And so mm-hmm. if they close for three weeks, they lose, or 24 hours, they lose the equivalent of three weeks of income over the whole fiscal year. Um, 
So I'm not saying I'm not saying she's right. I'm, you know, I don't want to be on on that side of the argument. But I just like yeah. it's kind of like a it's like a dramatic line to kind of signpost actually. Yeah. The, the level of loss as a community they're going to suffer, you know, through I, through that decision. I do agree. You're probably right in some regards, but also I think when people get frantic, they just say like the dumbest things because they get. <laughs> They get like when the, when their world gets turned upside down even a little bit, people can freak out. Like, and I mm. once again we're seeing that now. Mm. And um, you know, even back when they said it would only be three weeks, people were like, "Nope, I'm I'm I am not doing this whatsoever." Yep. And so, yes, yes. I think there it's a it, little column A, little column B, mm-hmm. uh, where it. I, I think one thing we talked about too is that we don't see this woman on screen whatsoever. So she is, she is the, the voice of Amity as far as we're concerned. Like this line is turned so far up in the mix. It sounds, it sounds ridiculous in the, in the sound mix, actually. It's, it's completely disembodied. And so it, like, it almost feels like the, 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 the entire town is speaking this line. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it reminds me of my favorite movie-going experience was um, the uh, the movie Drag Me to Hell by mm-hmm. Sam Raimi, which is a fantastic and super fun horror movie. Um, and I saw it at our local dollar theater, which is now defunct, but it would... So what would happen is movies would have their first run in the theater, and then right before they hit home video, and even sometimes after... They would go to this rinky-dink little theater that hadn't been updated since the 90s. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was disgusting. But amazing. Dollar fifty to get in. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was great. It was, no, great. And it's, it was a theater that I grew up going to. Yeah, so it, it grew up, I grew up going to there before we got the big state-of-the-art digital projection, um, you know, stadium-style seating multiplexes here. And so there was, there's always been nostalgia with that building. It's been updated and they serve food now and alcohol and it's not, it's, it's, it's not as good, but we went to the dollar theater to see drag me to hell. And there was this person of indeterminate age, gender, race. Like, I don't know. I have no information about this person, (laughs) but every time things would get a little intense in this movie, you would just hear from the back of the theater somewhere, this person at the top of their lungs just go, oh shit! <laughs> and it was incredible. Every time. It was oh. the most perfectly timed. No one was mad at this person. It enhanced the film going experience so well. But that was like a personal 24 hours is like three weeks for two hours watching, or an hour and a half watching Drag Me to Hell in the theater. And I mean, it you know, is hands down my favorite movie going experience because every every time this person said it, it was just like, yeah, you're right. That's exactly, <laughs> oh shit is correct. That is the correct take right now. And then inevitably something ridiculous slash scary, as scary as that movie can be because it's insane, um, would happen. But yeah, that was, I always think of the, the oh shit person whenever this person says 24 hours is like three weeks. <laughs> In Drag Me to Hell is a fairly um, intense film, so that must have been pretty regular that that person was exclaiming in the cinema, like I'm every like three to four minutes. Oh yeah, it happened a lot, and it was every time it, the the whole theater laughed, 
and was just like, yeah, that's, yep, you you nailed it, nailed it again, perfect timing. It was it was like it was a track that was meant to be played alongside the film. Mm. <laughs> Sweet director's commentary. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, it feels actually like the we took this is something again we talked about last week about just in a scene which is otherwise very very serious and there's lots of arguing happen and sort of important decisions being made it's just having those like small moments of brevity that just really cut the Mm. the tension and we get it right at the start with i've mentioned him before the sort of like wise cracking guy who's like is it is it cash or check um and everyone sort of has a good old chuckle and then the I think for us as the audience, the 24 hours is like three weeks line is particularly funny. Um, and it just sort of like, it just, it breaks up that tension a bit. And I think it's absolutely intentional that that line is mixed to be louder than the other people talking because it is a funny thing to say. Um, and then you get the the real sort of cutting of the tension moment, which is when the sound of the crowd talking then gives way to this awful, horrible noise of nails on a chalkboard. And one of my favourite things is going to Jaws screenings, uh, obviously, because I love this film and I love seeing it on the big screen. But I would say one of the things that the crowd most viscerally reacts to is the noise of nails on a chalkboard. Um they just seem to react in a way that is unlike anything else that really happens in the film. You get the sort of screams at uh, Ben Gardner's head and when the shark appears and plenty of laughs as well. But there's something that happens of like a collective just toes curling thing, (laughs) noise that happens when a a crowd watches that bit. But as far as iconic uh, movie entrances go, this one is this one is up there, surely. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think like the you guys was mentioning the the hysterical note in the voice of that individual who says, mm. you know, twenty four hours is like three weeks. The nails on the chalkboard is such a beautiful. Um, uh, well, it's, obviously it's a horrendous sound, but it's a beautiful way of <laughs> representing someone just saying, "Just shut up, <laughs> just be quiet," <laughs> because yeah. this is serious. And it, of course, like it's not just nails down a chalkboard; it's nails down a chalkboard across an image of a shark mm-hmm. swallowing a stick man and you know that image isn't on the on the board uh when they all enter the room at the beginning of the scene um so presumably quint is the one who's drawn it quietly at the back while they're you know getting into political and financial arguments he's there just quietly saying you guys have a massive massive predator in the ocean and that's the facts and i'm the only person who's going to be able to sort it for you um but yeah i mean it's so it's so iconic it's interesting thinking that it wasn't the original well mm. it wasn't one of the original ideas for how Quinn was going to be introduced um it certainly wasn't spielberg's first idea for how they would introduce the character i love quint so much and even just <laughs> this this little intro this little tease this is so what i was telling sarah before we started recording is this might have been harder for me to stop watching than even the alex kittner stuff even though okay. it's only <laughs> Oh, well, it's close to a month before we actually get to resolve this based on our recording schedule, but (laughs) it'll, it'll only be a week, um, for you guys. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's such a good character introduction because 
Quint is such a broad character in this movie until he's not, right? Mm-hmm. And um it I don't know. Just the the way they use the 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 sort of Robert Shaw spice mm-hmm. in this movie is so perfect, especially in this first half. If he's this constant presence in the first half, I feel like he he would wear out his welcome mm-hmm. a little bit. And this is it's funny because it's not subtle at all but this is about as subtle as quinn gets (laughs) and um it's it's this perfect like okay everyone shut up and adult speaking um (laughs) situation and i think it's saying something when the adult in the room is quint Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i think it's it's a great um not so subtle bit of foreshadowing as well um we get that even more in when quint starts to speak but the fact that uh next to him is this drawn shark with a little stick figure in his mouth um we know spoiler alert for a film that is old and if you haven't watched yours i don't know why you're listening to this um but quint obviously gets eaten by the shark that is that is his fate so interesting i don't think anyone watching this for the first time would necessarily be like oh clock that foreshadow in this guy is gonna get mm. eaten by a shark but it's a nice little thing for us as jaws super fans to yeah. spot that little thing and i think the line that he says in his opening monologue is that the shark will swallow you whole and it's like well yep that's 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 what happens so <laughs> absolutely yeah, no, and it's interesting, the, the concept of foreshadowing in the Quint introduction um, mm-hmm. was quite different, but also in Spielberg's version. So in Spielberg's uh, version of the script, which was one of the early ones, I think, before Howard Sackler and Carl Gottlieb had a, had a pass at it, um, Quint was going to be introduced in the local movie house watching the uh, Gregory Peck uh, film Moby Dick. Huh. Um, um, but uh, Gregory Peck wouldn't give the rights because he wasn't particularly... Uh, uh, proud of the movie, didn't think it was his best work, um, and so they had to go down a different route. Um, but of course, the the Ahab versus the whale thing in Moby Dick um, is obviously it's very analogous to Quint's whole relationship with sharks. You know, we have later have on the Indianapolis, uh, you know, speech, uh, which kind of sets the the relationship, the long term relationship between these animals and Quint um, as being one of almost like. Uh, dark-hearted revenge on his part um but also in benchley's novel um quint isn't eaten he ends up being lashed to the side of the shark um harpooning it trying to kill it Mm. and then he drowns as the shark keeps on diving which is exactly how ahab dies in moby dick and so you know when spielberg put his uh draft of the script in we had ahab as foreshadowing and then borne out in how quint dies um and then in this version of course we have um, the foreshadowing with the stick man in the mouth of the shark. And of course, then Quint is eaten rather than drowned. And, and that was because of, you know, I'm sure, you know, you guys will get to this in, in due course at the end of the film, but they had to change the, um, they, they chose some parts of the, the ending. And um, uh, yeah, it's just interesting how it's still kind of tied up together um, and you still get that kind of through line. Yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> we're so far away from seeing seeing Quint's uh, Quint's death and what happens uh, with. There's some other changes in the book as well, I believe, with Hooper um, and what mm. happens with him that uh, were changed. But um, 
yeah, I I always find foreshadowing so interesting because I, as I mentioned, I don't think it is one of those things that you necessarily pick up on, but it's a nice little thing for when you revisit a film mm. and Jaws is absolutely one of those films. I, I keep on saying this, but you get something different out of it every single time. And I even the stories of alternative, you know, introductions for, for Quint and, all you know, alternative deaths for Quint, they all sort of had that element of foreshadowing in them. Like, these people making mm. this movie, like, they knew what they were doing, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see at what point the, um, the death of Quint was change because i'm presuming it was in benchley's original submission mm. but because jaws went through so many pairs of hands at some point it, it got subbed out for him being eaten mm. um so actually you know i don't know whether I, that was in spielberg's original script whether but in either way like there, there is that kind of nod to benchley's novel and mm. nod to the ahab myth and as it as it stands i think both the introduction and and the death of quinn are far more iconic and, and less on the nose i think you know jaws is pretty much a perfect film but um I think Benchley's novel is a little bit, a little bit blunt at times, and I think pushing the Ahab stuff slightly into the mm. subtext rather than keeping it as text, it definitely works in, in the advantage of the film. Yeah, we're we're not big defenders of the book here, so I think in fact no. we described it on a previous episode as the one of the few examples where the film is definitely better than the book. So yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and very different as well. Um, yeah, I did. Um, MJ, did you have anything else that you wanted to? to add before we start wrapping up so no i think i'm good i don't <laughs> I, I had a couple of other things to say about the casting of robert shaw but i don't mm. know if you want to leave that for the next person mm. um Ooh, it, yes give us give us some give us some things we've always got time here <laughs> um i think as well as like the change in the intro of quinn i think it's interesting about how robert shaw ended up playing quinn because uh, mm. spielberg famously didn't get a lot of his first choices for the different characters um uh, one of the exceptions being uh, that he wanted Murray Hamilton um, as, as Mayor Vaughan from the beginning. But for for, Sh- um, for Quint, he didn't go want Robert Shaw to begin with. He wanted Lee Marvin. Mm. And uh, Lee Marvin was apparently not interested because he was, I think he was either fishing for real at the time or he was, a, you know, he was a big fisherman himself and he just didn't find the idea of doing a, a fish movie uh, appealing. Um, they also, you know, Spielberg also wanted an actor called Sterling Hayden, uh, mm-hmm. who was in um, Kubrick's uh, Doctor Strangelove. Um, and you know, it was actually uh, the producers David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck who suggested Shaw because they just worked with him on The Sting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because then you know you think Shaw arrives so deeply, fully formed. Um, mm-hmm. As Quinn is, it, I, you know, I can imagine like Marvin would have been great. I can think, or Hayden probably would. You know, I'm less familiar with Hayden, Hayden's work apart from outside of uh, Strange Love. But you can think, yeah, okay, yeah, that could work. Um, but yeah, Shaw arrives so fully formed, and I guess like part of that is obviously that Shaw was um, uh, an accomplished theatre actor and you know, movie actor and a, a writer in his own right. Um, he also like a lot of the actors of, of that era was quite hard drinking, um, as as Quint is. You know, so there's scenes later on, for example, him doing the Indianapolis uh, scene completely drunk, uh, and some of those some of those shots are still in that sequence. They they need to cut him with him doing it sober, and it's difficult to tell which is which. Um, but there's also the the way that they integrated uh, real uh, real lines and real input from some of the islanders. So uh, Craig Kingsbury, who was um, the 
gentleman who played Ben Gardner was a, was a real fisherman from mm. Martha's Vineyard. And um, for example, it's his line. Um, you know, it's not like going down the pond chasing bluegills and tommycots. That's a that's a Craig Kingsbury line, mm. which uh, Shaw then you know uses in the next scene. So yeah, I don't want to push too deeply beyond the timestamp that we're covering. <laughs> but I think taking this as the introduction of Shaw, I think it's just yeah, it's just really interesting seeing how you you take the multiple script treatments from Benchley, from Spielberg, from Sackler, from Gottlieb, mm. and you take you take that influence from real life Martha's Vineyard's fishermen. Um, you take what could have been uh, with his other actors, but what actually did transpire because of uh, Zanuck and Brown, and you get this this absolute titan of modern mm. cinema um, in in the character of of Quinn. Yeah, it's really inspired casting, I think, for for Quinn, and I am very happy that we're now at the point of the film where we can just talk about him uh, almost every single week, and certainly in in next week's episode where. He basically has the floor, I think, for that entire episode. So next week is going to be mm. Quint cast, uh, where we will just do nothing but talk about Quint. But um, very much looking forward to that. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your all of your insights. I know you've done tons of um, research uh, for this episode, Tim. So it's been really great having you on. And I yeah, just obviously wanted to, as we're sort of wrapping up now, um, thank you for coming on. It's been it's been really great chatting with you and to give you a chance uh, to plug anything that you want to plug or tell people where they can find you on, on Twitter and elsewhere. Great, great. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, so I'm a freelance film journal, so I write for a few different places like uh, Total Film Magazine and Jump Cut. Um, so, you know, in these COVID times, support film magazines, you know, uh, you know buy from those titles. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Fats Coleman, F-A-T-S-C-O-L-E-M-A-N. Or I run my own uh, genre site, movingpicturesfilmclub.com, if horror and horror-adjacent content is your thing. Yes, I definitely recommend that you go and uh, give Tim a follow and check out his stuff because it's all really great. And um, you can find uh, us on Twitter as well. We are at Jaws for a Minute. That's the podcast Twitter where you can find... Uh, mostly me tweeting um obviously it's where we share the episodes and just generally talking jaws it's my favorite thing to do so just having a platform where i can do that is fantastic so come and chat to us on there um you can also follow us individually i am at sarah buddery and mj is at mj smith 891 um you can also email us if you've got any feedback about the show or any other comments things you want to want us to cover any questions or anything like that um yeah just just let us know and uh we'll be happy to have a look at that and get back to you as well um you can buy some of our merch um that's probably the best way to support the show um and you can find that on redbubble and tpublic uh the links for that are in our twitter bio so you can get yourself a t-shirt a mask a coffee mug uh a blanket a shower curtain i don't know i i can't remember what's on there but it's all of those <laughs> all of those things and more probably um so definitely go and uh check that out and uh yeah we will be back talking all things quint uh next time uh which we're very much looking forward to but until then um it's jaws o'clock somewhere <laughs>